I did something this last week that I have not done for quite a while, and that is I listened to a sermon that I had preached. And I was, um, I was pretty disgusted. And what I was disgusted by was the degree to which uh, I, I let my own um, lack of comfort in preaching the Word uh, cause me to sort of wheedle and cajole instead of proclaim. And uh, I want to remind you as we begin our time of studying this week that despite the fact that I'm a man and that I have sins, that when I preach, I am preaching the Word of God to you. And uh, I trust that some of my um, awareness of myself will not be a scandal to you and cause you to harden your heart against Scripture. Um, And I will, for my part, do my best not to Uh, be apologetic about proclaiming this word to you. It happened to be the sermon on fruit. And uh, I want you to know that I take nothing back in that sermon other than that I did not preach it with enough authority. And that's (laughs) that's kind of dicey because some of you pushed back hard. But I think my failure was not being authoritative enough in what I said and careful enough. And... uh, this, today we go again into fruit. Now, as I've said the last couple of weeks, nobody minds us talking about the fruit of love. Uh, in other words, if love is a fruit of the Spirit, when I talk about love, it, 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 it fits pretty well because uh, our culture is saturated in talk of love, and so we think love is a very nice and warm thing. Um, so let's go ahead and look at love again this week. Instead of this week, Uh, We're going to look mostly at what love is rather than what it isn't. Or uh, we're going to focus on the second half of 1 Corinthians 13, the definition of love. But first, let us read our text, which is Galatians 5, 22 to 26. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. So having commanded the church in Galatia to walk by the Spirit, the Apostle Paul now sets down a list of the fruit of the Spirit. Our Savior's rule is... The tree is known by its fruit. The fruit of the flesh, we have learned here in Galatians chapter 5, is immorality and impurity and sensuality and idolatry and sorcery and enmities and strife and jealousy and outbursts of anger and disputes and dissensions and factions and envying and drunkenness and carousing and things like these. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Now again this week we turn to the first fruit listed, which is the fruit of love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. In Galatians 5, at the beginning of the chapter, we read, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. And so there's no way that faith, true faith in Jesus Christ, can fail to work in us without making us reconcilers of man to God 
and of man to man, one of us to each other. We, in turn, following our Father, love others as He first loved us. We have the character of our adoptive Father, and that character is love. God is love. Now, what is love? Well, if we turn to 1 Corinthians 13, we read that love is patient, love is kind and is not jealous, love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. Now, first of all, we're told that love is patient. The person who's patient is long-suffering. They're slow to become angry or resentful, not quick to take offense and to assert his rights. So patience is a characteristic that revolves around time and priorities. A patient person is somebody that takes his agenda and sets it aside for the sake of another person's agenda. A patient mother accepts the fact that her baby is crying. A patient mother knows that that child may cry for hours. She does everything she can to take care of the child's needs, but if nothing changes that child's crying, she endures it. She doesn't sit there and think, I love my child's crying. She endures the crying. She's patient with her child. She doesn't beat her child. It's not about her. It's about the child. And she puts up with the things that are difficult. The difficulty with practicing patience is that so often we think that our timetable and our agenda is more important than others. In our minds, we think that what we're involved with is the chief thing. And so whether we come to a child or whether we come to a marriage or whether we come to a home or whether we come to church, we judge it by what our priorities are. And if it doesn't measure up, we, we, we cast it off, we, we create a scene of some sort, um, but the thing is, we're impatient. And so, the patient person has the ability to take our own priorities, my priorities, my time schedule, and to set it aside and to look at other people and to see what's going on with them and to put them ahead of ourselves. And an awful lot of the work of, of leaders is calling the entire group, whether it's a family or it's at work or it's in a classroom or whether it's in a church, to call people to put their own priorities and their own um, schedules aside and to submit to the whole. And we all know that individualism is the reigning uh, posture of America. And... So we have to realize the degree to which our culture panders to impatience. Uh, our culture does not see the need to grow in the character trait of patience. Now, we think, for instance, of, uh, <laughs> well, you could take almost anything, fast food restaurants. 
You know, if if the line doesn't move fast enough, well, I'll tell you, when I go to Taco Bell, uh, what I do is I judge how many people are in the line of cars versus how many are inside. And I, it doesn't matter to me which I do as long as it's faster than the other one. So if I think driving through will be faster, I go, if I think walking through, I'll go inside. And, you know, this is what fast food restaurants are about. Um, if you want to save money at Kroger and how much you pay your cashiers, you put in electronic machines. But the only way that that will work is if they service the impatience that we have even better than the person. All right. So in other words, if you can make them faster, people will be put up with the machine. That's why we all use ATMs. You know, at some level, the, the teller isn't fast enough for us. And so uh, we save banks money, we save grocery. And you think of uh, lights, how many times I've gone around town thinking, why didn't they put a pad underneath this in intersection instead of putting it on a timer? You know how they have pads under the road and they sense when you're, did you all know they do that? A lot of intersections in Bloomington don't have pads. Don't they know I'm an impatient man? You know, they should have pads there. So it senses when I come and should say, oh, change the light. Tim's there. <laughs> Some of you aren't laughing. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> David said, because you're coming the other way. <laughs> you hope it will stay. Um, so, love, the first character trait that love has, the first way that love evidences itself, the first work that love does is to be patient. The second one is that love is kind. The person who is kind is good-natured and long-suffering. Kindness, like patience, is a regard for others that places them ahead of ourselves. Now, patient means to endure something that you don't enjoy, that you don't like. Kindness is to actually take action that is contrary to your own interests. The kind man or woman is good-natured, polite, not given to moody outbursts, but bearing up under insults and injuries with positive responses. Patience focuses on actions we don't take. Kindness focuses on actions that we do take. The root of the word is useful, and the kind person is a person who makes themselves useful, who's helpful to have around. So, are you kind? Are you helpful to have around? Kindness is the good we do to others without seeking or expecting anything in return. Think of God. God is kind to the wicked and to the ungrateful. God is kind to the atheistic evolutionist who denies that he exists. God supports and sustains his life every day. God holds the universe together so that he can describe that universe in a way that denies the existence of its creator. God is kind. God is not willing that any should perish. God is kind. God puts up with them, and God puts up with us. When we were drinking, when we were drinking and drunk and carousing and partying, God was setting aside a woman who was godly for us to marry. When all we had was lust in our eyes, God gave us a pious wife. Remember what it says in Proverbs, that houses and property are an inheritance from our parents, but a virtuous wife is a gift of God. 
In Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it's almost obscene to refer to this as kindness, to think of the death of Christ. But it is. It is the kindness of God to His enemies. You know, in the Bible, when love is defined by Scripture, it's not just kissing little children and saying nice things about pussycats. Love is kindness exercised in the face of hostility and anger or even indifference. Love is patient. Love is kind. Now we go on and we define it negatively. Love is not jealous. And we enter into a number of statements about what love isn't. And we have to remember that in Scripture, uh, it's never enough to say what something is. We always move into what something isn't. Love is not what? It is not jealous. According to our passage, there are seven things that love does not do or is not. Seven negatively defining characteristics of love. So where these traits are found, love is absent. And to the degree that these things characterize our life as a church, our church is not a loving church. First of all, love is not jealous. It doesn't envy. Envy is a desire for something that's possessed by another, and it's a violation of the Tenth Commandment that says you shall not covet. Uh, I've used this before. Gore Vidal says, quote, Whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. Now, I'm sure that's not true of you. I'm sure that you rejoice always in your friend's successes. When you see their name in print, when you see that they've gotten the title role at the next opera, I'm sure you just rejoice, right? When somebody gets hired as, uh, to play in some orchestra or symphony, when someone gets promoted above you, you rejoice because they're your friend, right? In other words, it would be easy if Gorv et al. had said, whenever an enemy succeeds, a little something in me dies. And we'd think, well, we didn't quite measure up, but after all, it's an enemy. But what he's saying is when a friend succeeds, that's when something in us dies. That is envy. Not merely wanting something someone else has, but dying a little inside when the other person obtains it. Love is not jealous. It does not envy. Second, love does not brag. Boasting is the opposite of envy. Envy is resentment of what another has and the desire to obtain what that person has for ourselves while boasting is exalting in what we have and taking joy in the fact that the other person doesn't have it. And so when you boast, the whole point is to say, you know who I got to meet? You know, you didn't get to meet him. Uh, you know, the contest I won, uh, you know what my children are doing. You know, you get all these Christmas letters. And actually, <laughs> uh, you're all laughing, but let me say something painful. You get all these missionary letters. And they're just filled with the accomplishments of the children. It boggles my mind. It's... <laughs> It's not what I remember missionary letters being when I was a little boy. But today, so many missionary letters are all about children and often bragging. Uh, 
And so if you have a time of mothers getting together and uh, your child happens to be the child that is challenged educationally and doesn't get good grades and you sit there and listen to them talk about what they're teaching and what the children are doing and how they've tested, um, love doesn't boast. Love does not brag. When we brag and boast, what we're saying is, I'm me, and you're just you, and you'll never be me. Love is not arrogant or proud. It doesn't envy, it doesn't brag or boast, and it isn't proud. The proud man doesn't love anybody but himself. Pride is never associated with any spiritual good. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that God resists the proud. Um, I've said a number of times that the older I get, the more sobering that statement is. Think of what Scripture says God resists. There aren't many things, but the Bible says God resists the proud. In James 4, 6, it says God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then it's repeated in 1 Peter 5, 5. And it's very interesting, the context. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Did you notice the context? You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And then it says, clothe yourselves with humility. You remember that the Apostle Paul one time is talking about discipline. And he says about discipline that they're handing someone over to Satan. What's that about? Well, what it's about is that when someone is rebuked by their elder and is too proud to receive the rebuke, but resists it and rejects it. What happens? Well, the Bible tells us that God resists the proud. And so often, when it's a serious issue, uh, but, but usually serious issues come up after a succession of, of rather minor issues. In other words, you don't test somebody's humility or pride on the basis of the big issue that comes along and let's see whether or not they're humble at that point. Usually, there's a lot of back and forth in community relationships. And over a period of years, someone will prove themselves capable of receiving correction or not. And then they hit the big issue. And typically, when that big issue comes along, if they've established a pattern of being resistant to receiving correction from their elders, they will follow their pattern. They hit the big issue, and they're really humiliated. And so they just kiss it off. And what happens at that point is that that person is handed over to Satan. Because whether the elders excommunicate them or whether they excommunicate themselves, in other words, they they renounce jurisdiction, uh, what they're doing is they're giving themselves over wholly to their own pride. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says that God resists the proud. And, you know, there's no ambiguity in this. Um, We don't have the absence of an ability to understand this as elders and as pastors. It's just so obvious. It's like the nose on the end 
of your face. That's how obvious it is to us. Um, one of the ways of knowing whether or not you're a proud man is to see whether or not you're in relationship with the other people in this church. If you're not in relationship with other people in this church, you're proud. Now you'd say, well, that's not necessarily true. And I say, yeah, that you're right. It could be that you actually have cerebral palsy and that you're not able to talk or walk or feed yourself. And so in that case, your absence of relationship is just a function of the disabilities that God has given you. Now, you all know I'm being facetious. I'm, I'm using sarcasm, which is a very dangerous thing to use in the pulpit. Why am I saying that? Well, because one of the persons in this church who is very relational is Bob Kapowitz, who has cerebral palsy, who can't talk worth anything, who can't feed himself, and who is there every Wednesday morning for the men's Bible study and prayer time. What an idiot. Now, you're the idiot. Why? Because you're proud. Bob goes and he, he prays. He has prayer requests. Sometimes makes contributions to the discussion. Sometimes we have to sit and wait two to three minutes before we understand what he's saying. And you? You can't be in relationship with somebody? I've been in a room alone with Bob when I've had to ask him up to seven and eight times to repeat what he's saying. This isn't about me, it's about Bob. Think of the humiliation of this man having to grunt out things that sound approximately like words over and over and over again because we idiots can't understand him. And he's willing to lower himself to be in community with us. And you can't do it? You can't love other people here, but Bob can? Now you know why I was being sarcastic. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous. You have no handicap that excuses you from being in relationship with other Christians. You imagine the disciple. Jesus went up to the disciple and Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And you said what? No, I have cerebral palsy. You know, or no, I, I just am a very, very busy man. <laughs> I have a demanding wife. You know, I have a lot of children. You know, well, my priorities in Bloomington are getting my degree. Or after I have tenure, then. So why aren't you in relationship? Why do you come late? And leave early, huh? Huh? It's pride. That's what it is. I don't care what you think it is. Now, I know there are people who do have cerebral palsy and have a good excuse for not being in relationships. But again, I'm teasing you. I know there are people who do have jobs that require them to come late. I know that. I don't know anybody here that has that problem, but I'm sure hypothetically somewhere in the U.S. there are people like that, you know. The Bible tells us that love is not proud. 
The Bible tells us that God resists the proud. And over the course of their life's work, Titus 2 women with women, elders with men, see over and over again the pride that keeps us from living together in love, from being in fellowship with each other, and ultimately the pride that causes us to be broken on the anvil of God's Holy Spirit. Yesterday I was talking to a man, and this man was going on with great, great, high-sounding, wonderful words about how we all stand before God alone and that the spiritual life is an individual life. And yet, this is a man who will not have anything to do with the church of Jesus Christ. How well do you think that man truly does understand his relationship with God? You know... The Bible tells us that if we claim to love God and don't love our brothers, that we're liars. And so if you don't have a priority of being in relationship with other Christians, this means you don't love God. You know what the problem we have today is that love is a feeling and a sentiment and an emotion. And that's not what we find here in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't say love is that warm feeling that you have for your husband after he's come home with a dozen roses, kissed you and said, honey, how was your day? Tell me about it. You know, that's not love. It may be love for your husband to do that, but love isn't what you feel when he does that. Love is action. Love, what does it say? Love is not jealous, it does not brag, it is not arrogant, it is not proud. It says love does not act unbecomingly, it's not rude. Rudeness is a contempt for the feelings of others. Now think about rudeness. What is rudeness? Now I'm gonna I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pick some some male rudenesses because I think typically men are more rude than women because I think typically yeah here comes a statement about men and women typically I think women are more aware of the feelings of others than men are is anybody gonna argue with me about that I mean all right fine I got away with it um, if you're camping what is rudeness rudeness is walking on the trail. And not bothering to hold the branch, allowing it to whip back into the face of the person behind you on the trail. Right? Okay? That's rude. Rudeness is going to a dinner table sitting down with your baseball cap on. Rudeness is taking a bite before the hostess takes a bite. Rudeness is yelling at your wife, telling her to sit down and take a bite so that you can eat. And anybody that's been at my house has seen me do that. Rudeness is not walking to the door with your guests when they leave. Rudeness is driving 40 miles an hour in a 45 to 50 mile an hour zone. Hold on. And then speeding up when somebody tries to pass you. 
Now, I just dealt with myself. Now I'm dealing with you. <laughs> I mean, it just happens and it happens and it happens. Taylor and I saw it happen the other day. Rudeness is going to the head of the line and daring anybody to punch you. Love is not rude. Rude is not taking your plate to the kitchen after dinner. Rude is not putting the toilet seat down. Rude is dropping your clothes where you take them off. Rude is sitting in the middle seat of the airplane and using both armrests on the left and right. I did fly recently. All right. Rude is not taking into account the feelings of others. Love is not rude. Love does not seek its own. Love does not place itself first, but it places others ahead of self. And this really is a summarizing of all the other things we have just looked at. If you're seeking yourself, you're rude. If you're seeking others, you're not self-seeking. Number six, love is not provoked. Uh, in the King James, in the NIV, and the New King James, they say easily provoked, but this is not the proper translation. Love simply is not provoked. In other words, love isn't angered. Love doesn't go from 20 decibels to 120 with veins bulging and fists clenched at the drop of a pen or the spilling of a cup of milk. Love doesn't speak hot and hasty words. Love doesn't make a mountain out of a molehill. Love doesn't react with physical violence and with hot tempers. Love is not provoked. Love does not cause fear. Fear in a child, fear in a wife. If you're the sort of person who others must tiptoe carefully around because of the consequences of arousing your anger, you're not a person who loves. In Matthew 5, our Lord says, verse 23, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. In other words, love causes us to remove provocations, to remove barriers, to remove anything that comes between us and others. Seven, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. It keeps no record of wrongs and it doesn't nurse a grudge. So the person who cuts off relationships, who takes only so much before breaking and setting off into the sunset, the person who remembers the evil that was done yesterday, the day before yesterday, two months ago, two years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago, this is not love. Because love does not keep a record. Love wipes the slate clean. Remember what happened when the prodigal son came home? While he was yet a long way off, his father saw him. Imagine the reasons for bitterness that father could have. You know, uh, look, son, 
You made your decision. You've made your bed. You lie in it. Think of how many of us would respond to the prodigal son that way. And it would teach him character. It's so good to be a father. Because anything that you give in to your own selfish inclinations is teaching your child character. You cuff him, teaching him character. That's how he'll be treated in the world, you know. You don't welcome him home when he squandered his inheritance. That'll teach him, you know. And the prodigal son was seen while he was yet a long way off, and his father went out and welcomed him. Can you imagine how long it would take us to earn our way to heaven if God did not love us? I've had a little running debate with Chris and Shelley Connell, who are both mathematicians. Or maybe Shelley isn't, but Chris is, and so Shelley is too. But she has to live with him. And I made the mistake once of using an actual objective number to describe how many sins we do a day. And Chris and Shelley both wanted to correct my number. Well, then I was reading recently Jonathan Edwards, who, as he got older, said that his sins were an infinity of an infinity. So when we visited them in their hospital room, I corrected myself and said that I was now just going to say that they're an infinity of an infinity. (laughs) Now think about this with God. However many you would put the number of, of your sin, however many it is, what if God waited to forgive you and to have mercy on you until you were able to pay off the debt that you had to him? You know? How long would it take to pay off your sins from this morning? And what about yesterday? We have a wonderful example of our Heavenly Father, who while we were yet sinners, while we were still His enemies, gave Himself to us and His Son to us in love. And so what are we willing to do? Hmm? After, after that many years, I just have no love left for my husband. You know? He's just done it once too many. And then we stand before the judgment seat of God. This is why it says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, for, for, if you, what? If you refuse to forgive other men their sins... Your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. How on earth can we have an unforgiving attitude towards our husbands and expect that God will forgive us? We have the explicit statement of Scripture, it won't happen. If you have an unforgiving spirit towards your husband, you do not have the forgiveness of God. You say, oh, but that's works salvation. I say, come on, forget theology. I don't really say forget theology, but my point is, if your theology allows you to escape the plain statement of Scripture, I don't give you a plug nickel for your theology because it's unbiblical. If you refuse to forgive your husband his sins, you do not have the forgiveness of God. Now, I could give you a theological explanation of why that's true, but I won't bother. I'm just telling you, if you refuse to forgive your father for his sins... You do not have the forgiveness of God. I'm not trying to minimize the sins of your father. 
But the Bible says that love does not keep a record of wrongs. Christians are not those who see their father naked in the tent and run out and tell everybody in the camp that dad's naked in the tent. Christians are ones who take what? They take the blanket and they back in so they don't see their father's nakedness themselves. And then they cover him. This is what Christians do. The Bible tells us that love does not keep a record of wrongs. And so I'm going to end this time, and next time we're going to pick up with the four positive actions that love takes. But let's rehearse the negatives. Okay? Love is not jealous. It rejoices in its friend's successes. Love does not brag. It doesn't try to put other people down by lifting ourselves up. It is not arrogant. It's not proud. It receives correction and rebuke knowing that God resists the proud. It does not act unbecomingly. In other words, it's not rude. It doesn't seek its own, but it seeks the things of other people. It is not provoked, doesn't fly off the handle, and it does not take into account a wrong suffered. And then finally, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. We would like love to be a sentiment that you can send by spending $3.95 for a Hallmark card. What do you mean I don't love you, honey? And didn't you get my card? Didn't you get the flowers? But honey, I just told you I love you. Didn't you hear me? You know, sweetheart, somehow... When you got up and you left the toilet seat up, you didn't put the cap back on the toothpaste. You left the little shower prong up, so when I turned on the shower, I got doused with cold water from the shower head. I went back into the bedroom and I found your dirty underwear from yesterday. I went down to the kitchen and you hadn't bothered turning on the coffee maker. I went out to the car and I found your fast food wrappers on the floor and that you had not filled the car up. At lunchtime, I didn't get a call from you telling me what was going on in your day or asking what was going on in mine. When you came home, you sat down and watched television and didn't come in the kitchen. When we sat down to eat and I had forgotten to put the salt and pepper on, You asked me to go get it, and you ate while I went in the kitchen to get the salt and pepper. When you didn't like the food, you made it clear to everybody at the table that you didn't like it. Afterwards, you didn't bother speaking to or cuddling or wrestling or doing anything with your children, but you went back to your television or your, probably in our church, your computer. When it turned out we didn't have milk for cereal in the morning, you didn't offer to go to the store and get the the milk. When I asked you if you were going on the men's retreat, you said no. You were busy that weekend. Honey, 
It just doesn't cut it for you to say, I love you, sweetheart. And no, I do not want to be intimate with you tonight. Honey, can you understand that? Let's pray.